President of the United States. The President. Good afternoon, everybody. I hear you have some questions for me. And the press. Thank you, Mr. President. I'd also like to ask you about your critics. In the U.S., there's been a symbiotic relationship where journalists have at times asked tough questions. As leader of the free world, as leader of the only superpower, why has it taken you, the United States, so long to articulate a policy on Bosnia? It has produced iconic moments. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And even humorous ones. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. <laughs> I'd like to head for the fence and try to catch that one before it goes over, but, but I'll go on to another question. The relationship can be close. Presidents in the press often spend significant portions of their career together, but it's a fraught relationship. But through it, there was an underlying sense of mutual respect for their relationship, one that George W. Bush captures here. We have been through a lot together. I have respected you. Sometimes they didn't like the stories that you wrote or reported on. Sometimes you um, misunderestimated me. Uh, but always the relationship I have felt has been professional. A relationship that is meant to be adversarial, but one that functioned on the unwritten rule that both parties would respect each other, at least on a basic level. Until. You know, you could see there was blood coming out of her eyes, blood coming out of her wherever. The false, horrible, fake reporting makes it much harder to make a deal with Russia. I'm not going to give you a question. You are fake news. Welcome to the know-how a podcast aimed at bringing academics and professionals together to dissect the pressing matters of today. I'm Dr. Glenda Cooper. And I'm Dr. Lindsay Blumel. Today we're going to break down one of the most important relationships in U.S. history, the president and the press. Here at London's Frontline Club, we caught up with someone who has been closely following U.S. presidential elections for five decades, the Washington Post's chief correspondent, Dan Balls. We talk about the ups and downs of modern presidential news reporting, how Trump has changed that, and what journalists need to do heading into 2020. The press has always been a whipping boy for politicians and presidents. Uh, I would say more so for Republican presidents than Democrats. And they have always run against the press as being hostile to their interests and hostile to their constituency and their middle American coalition. President Trump hitting back at the mainstream media earlier tonight after a week of attacks. Another example of mainstream media bias, how do you see it? Well, some mainstream media outlets are spending this week coming to terms with Donald Trump's stunning victory. Journalists admitting most of the polls that they quoted underestimated the president-elect's popularity. It's kind of, kind of the history of the mainstream liberal-leaning media. Naturally, the mainstream media was even worse. So-called mainstream media, so-called journalists, they should be embarrassed tonight. The corrupt media, and it is corrupt. Nixon certainly was. We know that from his tapes, his enemies list. Richard Nixon famously started calling the press the media as a way to position journalists as the other or an enemy. Today, many U.S. conservatives use the term mainstream media as a similar insult. I have never heard or seen such outrageous vicious, distorted reporting in 27 years of public life. Between February 1971 and July 1973, Nixon secretly taped approximately 
3,700 hours of conversations. Three thousands of these have been declassified and are now in the National Archives. The White House aide, Alexander Butterfield, exposed the existence of these tapes to the Watergate Committee on the 16th of July, 1973. I was aware of listening devices. Uh, they were installed, of course, for historical purposes to record the president's business, and they were installed in his two offices, the Oval Office and the EOB office. The Washington Post revealed that while Nixon had previously said that he didn't destroy the tapes because of guilt, in fact, it was because he planned to use parts of them for his defence. No reporter from the Washington Post is ever to be in the White House. In the tapes, Nixon stated he never wanted the Washington Post to ever be in the White House again. Not surprising, since the Post broke the Watergate story. What also came out of the Watergate proceedings was a confidential list dated August 16, 1971. Subject, dealing with our political enemies. The list included over 50 journalists and news organizations, such as the LA Times, the New York Post, Boston Globe, and of course, the New York Times and the Washington Post. Much has been published on how Nixon changed the tone of the relationship between the president and the press, and it seems to be most hostile or fluctuate the most for Republican presidents. George W. Bush got along with reporters during the 2000 campaign. Uh, he had a quality about his personality that was engaging, and he, he knew and liked reporters. That relationship obviously changed both after 2011, but particularly with the Iraq War, and, and things became more, you know, more difficult. This will not be a campaign of half measures, and we will accept no outcome but victory. My fellow citizens, the dangers to our country and the world will be overcome. President George W. Bush declared Operation Iraqi Freedom on the 19th of March 2003. One year later, the New York Times and eventually other journalists and news outlets publicly admitted to not examining the Bush administration enough in the aftermath of 9-11. You never have that same set of circumstances a second time around. There was a failing on the part of the press ahead of the Iraq war. And to the extent that there were stories questioning the intelligence, they tended to get buried or not written at all. And we have, you know, we have acknowledged that. And I think we have tried to be more skeptical about those kinds of things today. But you don't know what you don't know. You don't know the situation that you're in and how what information might be available that you don't see. So that's the challenge for the press. Fast forward to the age of social media. The impact of the Iraq war on journalism has faded into more of a distant memory, but the effects of having presidents and presidential hopefuls creating their own narratives has grown exponentially. John McCain in 2000 had his Straight Talk Express. It was a bus, his campaign bus. Reporters could get on that bus and in between stops, and sometimes it would be an hour or more, ask him any question that they wanted and he would answer on the record. No politician would do that today. I asked McCain one time, if you were running again, would you do that? He said, you can't do it anymore in the age of Twitter. The journalists are looking for a gaffe, a little thing, and they want to tweet it out. And he said, I, I, I wouldn't be able to do it. I can see Russia from my house. <laughs> I hope they now go and take a look at the oranges. The president's ancestral family oranges weren't the only thing giving him trouble today. He kept going on and on about the oranges, the oranges. We're in a period in which political figures don't care sometimes what the fact checker says. There was a political operative who in 2012, I believe it was, 
who worked for the Romney campaign, he said, we're not, we're not going to run our campaign on the basis of fact checkers. And they were going to make the decisions they wanted. The second thing that makes it very, very difficult today is that the public is so divided about what is and what isn't fact and what organizations are reliable and what aren't. Everybody back there, the fake news media, look at all of them. In 2016, according to Gallup, only 32% of Americans trusted mass media, and that dropped to only 14% for Republicans. It was with this background that Trump ran and won for the presidency. He won his base by taunting and insulting the press, while simultaneously being totally accessible and basking in media attention. There is a disconnect, and we know that they will seize on anything that they think helps tell their story. And if it happens to be in the Washington Post or the New York Times, fine. They don't particularly care about that. But that doesn't that doesn't override the other messaging that's coming out in his tweets and, and his statements at political rallies, which, you know, at every rally he will point back to the press pen and talk about fake news or enemies of the people or the opposition party. And those shorthand tweets and criticisms are what penetrate the Trump base. So there's no way we can get around that. We can point out the irony of them relying on us to tell their story when they feel it's, you know, that it's helpful. But the main message that's coming from them is that on, on balance, we're unreliable and they should trust what the president says. Mr. Trump would often say, this campaign was going to be the greatest infomercial in political history. The campaign for him was always a marketing opportunity. Michael Cohen, Trump's lawyer and fixer, summed up one of the biggest problems that the press has how to cover a president who doesn't campaign in a way ever seen before. He thinks about ratings. He thinks very short term. He wants to have the highest ratings every day or every week. And he wants to be the dominant character in that reality TV show. Do we play into that sometimes? I think we do. We debate, have debated constantly. How do we cover the tweets? Uh, to what extent do you cover them or ignore them? You know, a tweet literally is an official presidential statement, right? It's not, you know, it's no longer just a tweet. It's a presidential statement. So which of those do we take seriously? Some we ignore and some, like when he said we're pulling out of Syria, he's setting policy. Well, he's rolled it back, but he's setting policy. Hey, media. So I heard uh, Donald Trump broke up with you. Stings a little, doesn't it? Finally thought you'd met your match. A blabbermouth who's as thin-skinned and narcissistic as you are. <laughs> we also play into it because he knows, and we seem you know, less capable than perhaps we ought to be, to resist recycling that. And on cable television, talking about it constantly. Twitter is a powerful source of information and it's a powerful medium. And Trump, Trump's the most skillful politician we've seen at making use of that. And now with 2020 starting to loom, the questions behind how the pivotal relationship between president and press will exist in future seem even more uncertain than what Trump will tweet next. I think a lot depends on who the next president is and when there is a next president. It's entirely possible that uh, President Trump will be reelected and serve until 2024. At that point, you'll have had eight years of this type of politics and this particular president. That is changing all kinds of things in our politics and it's difficult to project forward. If he is not reelected in 2020 and we have a different president, 
I think initially there will be, you know, there will be a moment of people saying, well, okay, that was four years and now maybe we're back to some normal. I'm not convinced of that. I think that it's going to take some time to kind of unspool this and sort it out. If Donald Trump goes off the scene after 2020, his, his base doesn't go away. His movement doesn't go away. The Republican Party has still got to grapple with the degree to which he's changed it. The Democratic Party is going to be something, but we don't quite know what it is because they're going through their own period of transition and maybe transformation. As political parties change, so must journalists adapt, both within the U.S. and around the world. I think the lessons are basically to kind of strip away the traditional instincts that we have about covering politics and to be open to the idea that we simply don't quite know where we are right now and we, and we can't project forward. And the most that we can do is to be completely open-minded and to try to, to try to think about new ways or different ways of telling the story. We're in a time we've never experienced before. People who say, I've got the answer, are consistently wrong. You've been listening to The Know How, the podcast that dissects pressing issues with academics and experts. It was presented by Lindsay Blumel and Glenda Cooper and produced by Atina Dimitrova. For other episodes and live events, please go to our website, blogs.city.ac.uk slash the knowhow podcast, or you can follow us on Twitter at knowhowpodcast or on Facebook at the knowhow podcast. Thanks for joining us.